There's a lot of people that are in the workforce and you don't know that they're disabled, as well as another group of people who might not know themselves that they're disabled. There are sometimes people who get diagnosed later in life. Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I'm speaking with Katarina Rivera, founder of Blindish Latina, disability public speaker, and DEI consultant. She has created such an important channel to discuss disability, and she shares tips for all of us as we build disability inclusion into our everyday operations. I hope that you learn as much as I did about her journey and experiences as a disabled person. Katerina, welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. It is really nice to have you on with us today. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for inviting me. You had a really interesting and varied career and background, and so I would love it if you tell our audience more about you. Tell us about your personal background first, and then we'd love to hear your career journey. I'm Cuban and Puerto Rican. I was born and raised in Maryland in the United States. My parents taught me Spanish as my first language. So that's one identity that I hold. I've also been disabled my whole life. My first disability was being hard of hearing, and I've worn hearing aids since I was a toddler. When I was 17, I was diagnosed with a progressive vision disability called Usher syndrome that actually explains my hearing disability as well because it's a combination of vision and hearing. Today, I have a small window of central vision, just a box around my eyes remaining, and I use a white cane to help me navigate the world. From a career standpoint, I started my career with Teach for America as an elementary school teacher teaching bilingual education. I then moved into nutrition and public health, earning my MPH degree, and transitioning into roles in different New York City nonprofit organizations. I did food justice work, community engagement work, capacity building work. In 2020, I started my Instagram account, Blindish Latina, to share my story as a proud disabled Latina woman. I turned it into a business in 2021 and started working as a public speaker, DEI consultant, and content creator. So before you started the Instagram page and really thought about this as a business, How were you including all those aspects of yourself in your career, in the jobs you had had previously? I have always pursued my passions, whether that was through my full-time role or a side hustle or another project. So I have various times where I started something. The first time that I did that in my career was when I was 25. I quit my job as a teacher to start a community health program in Washington Heights and Inwood. That taught me a lot because I learned that when you take a risk like that, but you're very aligned to what you want to do and you're working hard, opportunities come your way. Though I was a little bit worried about stretching my savings, but I got opportunities to do social media management, which I had never done before, and things really worked out. I also started a sustainable travel business a few years ago on the side because I was very interested in supporting local communities alongside travel and how we can do that better. And so I organized a trip to Puerto Rico, and this was done with my co-founder. I really believe that I can only plan what's next for me. I don't really know what's going to happen in 10 years because I don't know who I'll be in 10 years. And the teaching aspect of what you've done really seems to carry through As you mentioned, you started to teach for America, but so much of what you do now is advocating and speaking and teaching. 
really others. So how do you think about that skill and that calling that you've really weaved into so much of what you do? Well, first of all, I think when teachers change careers, their teaching experience doesn't get the respect that it deserves. There are serious transferable skills in the teaching profession. The first four years of my career, I spent as a classroom teacher in the Bronx and Harlem. At first, I was a part of Teach for America, but then I continued teaching because it's only a two-year program and I taught for four. When teaching bilingual education in the Bronx, that was meaningful for me personally because I was working with the Latina community. I can honestly say that being a teacher has prepared me for my current work as a disability public speaker and consultant. Because as a teacher, I learned how to speak in front of a group of people daily and hold their attention how to be inclusive in the classroom, how to create a safe space and community, which is very important for DEI work, how to design learning sessions and have clear objectives, a clear idea of what you're trying to achieve. Learning styles, that was something important that I was exposed to, the understanding that not everyone learns the same way and how can I present the material in ways that can reach everyone. Power of assuming positive intentions in others. There are so many times where children act out and you can have a positive assumption or negative assumption. But oftentimes you speak to them and you find out there's something else going on or there's a difficulty that they had with communication, whatever it might be. I think that's very impactful as a life lesson. Showing up as my authentic self is what will resonate most and connect with others. Children can know if you're being fake, you know, they really connect with you showing up authentically, even when you mess up, even when you're having a difficulty. I had to interact with different audiences as well. It wasn't just the kids. I had to interact with administration, with parents. It's very delicate sometimes communicating with parents and figuring out how to make them your partner and not have a conflict. So that's another skill. I think that vulnerability and asking for help is another powerful lesson because in the beginning, I wasn't a good teacher. It was very hard in the beginning. And I had to learn how to ask for help within the classroom. And I had many mentors help me and advise me. And then I remember one time I had completely lost my voice, but I still had to teach. I told my students that day what was going on. I asked them for their partnership. I don't exactly know how I did it. Maybe I put it up on some slides and I asked them to help me so we could have a good day. They truly rose to the occasion, and I had zero issues that day with the class. Wow, I love that. I'm curious for you, did you also have teachers growing up that helped you with the things that you needed supports with in school, for example? And also, how did your family help you along the way? My teachers growing up, what I got from them was this validation that what I had to say mattered, that my voice mattered. And that's a very powerful thing to receive as a young person and to be praised for the quality of your work and your efforts. So I remember some of my strongest teacher relationships were with a middle school teacher who was my English teacher. And she basically taught me how to write. And I loved that class so much because she was very passionate about what she was teaching. Whatever book we were working on, she would like act it out or do something really off the wall that we were not expecting. And we'd all be talking about it like, wow, she really went there. Like, But it really was memorable. But as far as my parents, my parents have been my biggest champions. Even when they don't understand what I'm doing, 
like social media, content, brand partnerships, they are really supportive and they believe in me. And so that's really mattered a lot. I also have had them as role models. My mother is an entrepreneur herself. And so I've watched her have freedom with her time, manage relationships with clients, work really hard and have a thriving business. So there are just so many lessons I've learned from them and they've been super supportive. So I'd love to talk about your work as an advocate. You know, you're really passionate and outspoken on the need to recognize the disabilities that many people have in the workforce. Maybe some are visible and maybe some aren't. And you've talked a lot about how we might not know what people are dealing with. They might not disclose these things, but they're out there and they're important to recognize for many reasons. And in a TED Talk that you did, you talked about going to a job interview and the things that you had to do to get there, even leaving early or the way you approached an elevator. And it really made me realize how much I take for granted and just going about my day and not having to think about those things. Tell me about that kind of experience. You know, What are you trying to convey to others so that they understand your lived experience? In sharing my story, I share things like that, the job interview experience. That was maybe an hour of my life but I really wanted to bring people with me in the TEDx talk of like, what's going on in my mind as I'm trying to get to an interview? And it's everything before the interview that's already stressful, just navigating. And I was not public about my disability with the employer. So there was just a lot there. And I think what's important for me is I want people to look at the world and realize that if they're non-disabled, their world is not my world. It's not the same world for disabled people. And it's not okay to just leave it how it is. It needs to be accessible. Whatever your capacity is, whatever your scope of influence is, you can make a difference, whether that's at your place of worship or at work or in your family. How can you create more accessibility and inclusion for everybody? Because there are so many spaces, just physical spaces, where disabled people are left out. There are digital spaces where we're left out. There are places in the medical community we can be assumed to have a poor quality of life and not be worth saving. With my advocacy, I really want non-disabled people to care about us and not think of disability as existing in some other part of society, doesn't touch their life, they don't have to think about it, they don't know anybody who's disabled. No, you know people who are disabled. And if you don't, like you truly don't, then I'll be your online disabled friend. You'll get to know me And I'll share my stories and bring you into my life. And my goal there is for you to become an ally and accomplice, someone who takes action on behalf of disability issues. And so it's very important to do in the workplace, but also in the world. I was really struck by one of your comments that disabled people are problem solvers because the world is not built for them, as you're describing, that there's so many things that you need to work around and there are obstacles and things that others just don't see through your eyes. Tell us about that. I mean, that really was powerful to me. Does that resonate with other people when you describe things that way? Well, it resonates with disabled people for sure. I know that I've shared similar statements on LinkedIn about how talented disabled people are, how innovative, that we should be seen as super valuable in the workforce. It's out of necessity, definitely being adaptable and innovating, something that people, I think, really resonate with within the disability experience. So um, one thing that I'll share is just that it takes a lot of energy to be disabled in a world that's not designed for us, not adapted to us. So just for example, 
think about when I go to the bathroom and I'm in a new restaurant or a new space. Every time I go there, I have to figure out where is it and are there stairs to get there. And I have limited vision, so I'm scanning and trying to put a picture together. When I get in there, where is the light switch? Where are the paper towels? Where is the soap? I have to find like five things every time. And sometimes I'm in a public bathroom. Sometimes it's a one-person bathroom. So that's an aspect of my life that is regular and always happening for me. But I know that other people would not think about that and would not really think about, oh, how can I make this bathroom easier? For example, if the light is off, can you put like a piece of tape around the light switch that glows in the dark? And that way I can find the light switch without padding all over the wall and putting on my flashlight. There have been times that I had to go. And so I'm using a flashlight and I didn't have time to find the light. So these are just things that I know there's so much need for awareness around, but it's not just awareness that needs to be built. It also needs to be will, like a will to make a change and to get involved in disability inclusion. You've talked a lot about making things more accessible, like you just have. When you think about the workplace, what are the things people can do to really make things more accessible? And it doesn't have to be that difficult, it strikes me. It has to be deliberate. But I think there are things that best practices that you've shared that can really make a difference to people. Can you tell us about some of those? The first thing that I would suggest is to make sure that the company is focusing on disability as part of diversity, equity, inclusion work. Disability is absolutely a part of DEI, but it's not always seen that way and it's not always prioritized. There are many disabled people in the world. There's a lot of people that are in the workforce and you don't know that they're disabled as well as another group of people who might not know themselves that they're disabled. There are sometimes people who get diagnosed later in life. All of this to say that in the workplace, disability needs to be talked about. There needs to be real inclusion built from the leadership standpoint, needs to be invested in, because oftentimes with disability, people focus on accommodations. It's like, oh, we're accommodating everyone who has asked for an accommodation. That's actually the bare minimum. That's not where the work needs to stop because you have all these people that are not going to be asking for accommodations. You have people that don't know that they need some support necessarily, and it's not enough to do an accommodation. So for example, I was working in a workplace where I couldn't hear on the office phones and because I wear hearing aids, that's a very common occurrence for me. When we explored what the accommodation could be, I got a special set of headphones that amplify the sound. Great. Now I can hear on the office phone, but that does not make every situation at the workplace accessible for me or inclusive for me. There were times in meetings where I couldn't hear someone, or there were times when in the break room, I had trouble navigating when there are many people there trying to all make our lunches at the same time. Accommodations don't do enough. And the other thing I want to say is that for in the workplace, there's this misconception that accommodations are expensive or that disability inclusion is very high tech and difficult to implement. That's absolutely not true. Most accommodations cost less than $500 USD and are one-time costs. And a lot of them are free as well. So like, for example, working remotely accommodation, that does not cost additional money. Now, when we talk about disability inclusion, this high tech, it's not all about accessible technology, 
One of the things that I shared in my TEDx talk was that there are some easy and simple ways to be inclusive. Things like meeting agendas, meeting notes, and closed captions. Those are the three that I shared in my talk because anyone can really implement them. A meeting agenda helps people prepare their thoughts ahead of time. It helps hard of hearing people know what's going to be discussed, especially the ability to know a key term if it's new. Meeting notes help make sure I don't miss anything afterwards. We're summarizing key decisions. We're summarizing action items. We're making sure that everything was clear to every person. People might have memory issues or learning disabilities. It's really such a wide group of people that these types of best practices support. So with closed captions, I always share that while people think captions are for the deaf and hard of hearing, people who are autistic, have auditory processing disorders, English language learners, or who are tired and distracted can benefit from captions. If you provide captions on everything as a default, that's your inclusive strategy. People don't have to ask. People can decide to use the captions if they want to or feel like it can support them that day. And so that's why I really promote disability inclusion. There are so many other best practices, and I talk about things like avoiding microaggressions, using inclusive non-ableist language, and there's just so much depth that I go to, into with my trainings with my clients, but that's just a little taste. Now, that is very straightforward. When you talk to clients, what are some of the challenges that they express to you that you really try to help them overcome? Are there pretty typical or standard things that you see out there? Challenges are really that ableism is very powerful and it exists everywhere. There's a lot of stigma around disability in particular. So when we have these conversations and or I offer a training, one of the first things that I talk about is that disability itself is not a bad word. It's not something that's bad to talk about. There's nothing wrong with disability because we have seen in the disability community, we have seen non-disabled people come up with all kinds of other words and terms like differently able, handicapable, all these terms to avoid using the term disability. And that is a very powerful message that many advocates have shared. Disability is not a bad word. So that's the first thing. We need to be able to talk about it. I think a lot of people don't know what to say. And so that's something I try to address in trainings, especially the scenario where you are a manager or you're just someone in the workplace and you have someone disclosing their disability to you. So how can you respond in a way that's supportive? And that's something that I talk about. But I think oftentimes just with disability in general, from my perspective, I think that companies are not there yet in terms of working their way up to inclusion and being strategic. So a lot of my clients bring me in for one-time engagements. So they're really still in the awareness stage. And so I'm hopeful that as we do the work, as they learn more about disability and how important and impactful accessibility is and inclusion is, not only for their work culture, but also for their clients, for their customers, for their products, for their services, then they'll be ready to do deeper work and inclusion and making that strategic change. I'd love to go back to the earlier point you mentioned about starting Blindish Latina several years ago. What inspired you to start that? I started Blindish Latina because I wanted to see someone like me out there in the world, and I didn't see 
a lot of people that were like me talking about disability. So I wanted to put myself out there as a professional disabled Latina woman. I wanted to represent my story and create awareness among non-disabled people. As we know, it is said that knowing just one person of an identity group reduces prejudice and bias. So I wanted to be that disabled friend for people who don't have anyone in their life that's disabled, like I mentioned earlier. So when I started, it was really just because I wanted to tell my story. And what are some of your goals, some of your near-term and longer-term goals? In the short term, I'm focused on securing more long-term client partnerships and increasing my connections in the accessible travel and inclusive travel space. One of the reasons I want to work on inclusive travel is because of the travel experiences that I've had as a deaf-blind person traveling. One time I was in Barbados and I was getting into a van. This is part of the public transit, little vans that zip back and forth on the main road. In the van, there's a driver and there's a person that takes the money. The person that takes the money jumps out and allows people to get on board. So I was there with my white cane. I'm trying to get into the van and navigate to an empty seat. The person who was the money collector grabbed my cane. And I know that in his head, he was grabbing my cane to help me because people who don't have a great understanding of blindness and who haven't had a lot of exposure to blind people who use a white cane, they do not necessarily understand that the cane is something that I'm using as a tool to see. So it's also an extension of my body. So no one should be touching any type of mobility aid, wheelchair, cane, anything that people are using without permission. But I knew that this was a moment of lack of awareness, but I was just like, no, <laughs> I held my cane very tightly. It's like, I need this. And I got into the van and you know, the way that I'm using it is that I'm touching different areas. I'm touching the step. I'm looking at how high something is. And that's really helpful for me getting into a new space. There have also been great experiences that I've had when traveling that I would love to have more of. One time I was on a flight and I told the flight attendant that I had limited vision and the flight attendant said, oh, would you like a tour of the bathroom? I said, yes, amazing. They walked me to the bathroom and told me exactly where everything was. And that was really helpful because this was going to be an overnight flight where the lights were going to dim. And it's much harder for me to see in a dark environment. My vision is better in the day or in a lighted environment. That is the only time I've ever been offered a tour of the bathroom. So that is a best practice that I would love to see standard practice across all flights. And I know there's just a lot more to do when it comes to travel. In terms of long-term goals, I've already achieved my goal of delivering a TEDx talk. That was a huge goal for me. And so a book will be next. Oh, I can't wait to read that and just hear more of your perspectives and what we can all do to improve our culture and environments. As you think about the workplace and even society at large, and you think about leadership when it comes to this issue and really just issues in general, what are the qualities that you believe make a good leader? I believe a good leader is empathetic, demonstrates flexibility, has humility, is open, transparent, has integrity and courage and vulnerability. I think all of those are really powerful qualities and a leader needs to understand what their role is. Their role is to get their best out of their people and to create a safe space for everyone and recognize that they don't know everything. 
And what do you think leaders can do to discourage ableism and to really create a more inclusive environment? There's a lot of things that they can do. I'll start with, of course, saying the word disability, being more comfortable with the conversation. Don't make assumptions about disabled employees and their capacity. Sometimes I hear stories of disabled people saying that they are concerned they won't be offered challenges in their work or they won't be promoted. So it's really important not to have an environment where these assumptions are made and someone is then held back in their career. So a manager might feel like they don't want to push someone with a disability to make them uncomfortable or put them in a situation they can't do the job, making assumptions about that without having the conversation and trying to help that person grow and stretch them. Exactly. Just really not having the person involved. And so when we think about what in general people think about disabled people, a lot of it's like, oh, they can't do stuff. It's not really a conversation about how can we adapt things so that disabled people can do this. So I think it's just leaving the disabled person completely out. Instead of making an assumption, they should be spoken to. You should speak to them, have that conversation and figure out what would be best. Mm, mm, Totally, totally agree. Katarina, what does disability inclusion look like to you in the workplace? To me, it looks like an organization that has thoughtfully built in inclusion and accessibility into every stage of the employee and customer experience. The work has been done and employees don't have to ask for everything that they need. This means building in a lot of flexibility and choice and designing with accessibility in mind from the beginning. For example, in the interview process, there should be different ways for candidates to demonstrate their fit for the role, not just a verbal interview, an actionable task to complete or a live activity where they can be observed are two examples. Microsoft has a neurodiversity hiring initiative where they use a video game to observe how candidates communicate, work with others, how they lead, etc. Another thing that I think is just so important for disabled employees once they are hired is providing ways that they can get support without needing to always justify their need due to their disability. So for example, I love saying that I benefit from captions. Can you please turn them on? Instead of saying, I'm hard of hearing and I need captions. Can you provide them? Because I don't think I always have to talk about my disability or disclose that someone else gets to evaluate whether or not I actually need this. Because that does happen often to disabled people. They ask for what they need and they are denied what they need. And no one else understands our exact experience often. Even within disability, we're all very unique in how our experiences are. For employers, they could create a list of supports that are available to everyone, and anyone should be able to request those. If you're looking for what that could look like, I would recommend going on Inclusively's website. Inclusively is a platform where disabled candidates get connected with jobs. And as a candidate, when you sign up, you get to select what kind of supports you need in the interview process. In a company that's really got it right with disability inclusion, I would expect to see openly disabled executive leaders. I would expect there to be representation. I would also expect to see that accessibility is a mandatory part of all design processes, whether that's the design of an employee team building experience or the design of a new product. There's much more I could add, but that's an introduction. 
I love your remarks here. And it's such good reminders, not only to build things for customers outside the organization for the disabled community, but internally making sure your employees are also taken care of. I think that's something that many companies might overlook as they're more focused on the external landscape. So thank you for that. Of all the work that you have going on right now, what is the one thing you're most excited about? Well, as you may know, October is National Disability Employment Awareness Month. I just love being a part of these conversations. I'm doing many speaking engagements and fireside chats at organizations. I also really enjoy the opportunity to talk about intersectionality at this time of year because there is an overlap between Latina Heritage Month and Endeam. So I get to come in there and talk about my heritage and my story and intersectionality as well. So it's just really an honor to be able to use my voice in this way and have an impact. Well, we celebrate this time with you and we're really pleased that you're here and speaking with us on this podcast. As we wrap up, what is the one thing you hope our listeners take away from this episode? I hope listeners realize that disability needs to be prioritized within DEI work and that accessibility helps everyone. I think that those are just really core important things to acknowledge. And if someone just really wants to begin their learning journey, I'm always sharing on LinkedIn, on Instagram at Blindish Latina. I'm always sharing more videos because this is definitely not a one-time conversation. It's a long learning journey. Katerina, thank you so much for being here with us. It's such a pleasure to get to know you, to hear about your background, and really to think about the messages that you shared with us today. Thank you for having me here. It was such a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Katerina Rivera. I'm so glad we were able to celebrate National Disability Employment Awareness Month with her, as her voice is so important. Her stories of navigating the world without accessibility features are powerful, and I hope each of us can take away the importance of putting simple measures in place to support the inclusion of everyone. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. To learn more about Women on the Move and listen to the full library of this podcast, please visit jpmorganchase.com slash W-O-T-M. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.